This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Driven by Data, the podcast, season two, powered by Ambition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We're delighted to bring you another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, which boasts even more data analytics and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Our aim remains the same to uncover how some of the most prominent leaders within the data analytics community tackle our industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, ideas, and experience, and just as in season one, to give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season two. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by George McRae and Luke Parker, who are from the National Centre for Geospatial Intelligence. So, gents, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having us, Carl. Great to be with you. Uh, just about got all of that out in one. I'm glad I didn't go for the titles as well, to be honest. So, um, so yeah, but look, gents, so this is the second episode where we've had two guests on at the same time so um, I'm sure we'll manage to fumble our way through this but um, really excited to have you. Um, Where we always start is by asking our guests to give themselves a brief introduction into their background and and journey to date so I'll I'll let you decide who goes first. Um, George you might pull rank here but um, but yeah I'll uh, I'll let you guys uh, decide on that and uh, yeah be good to hear. I'd never do that. Luke is uh, a peer in every respect. Um, and I had this danger when we recorded before of letting Luke go first because he stole all the best lines. So I'll, I'll do it again and uh, let Luke intro himself. Cheers, George. Um, I, yeah, I'm uh, Captain Luke Parker and uh, I joined the army at 16. Uh, I got a, uh, an, I was lucky enough to get an army scholarship through both my A-levels and then a bursarship through university. Uh, after Leeds University, which is where I really got my first taste of geospatial data through um, a GIS module I did there. Um, I then attended Sandhurst, which is the Army's leadership training academy for a year before commissioning into the Royal Engineers, uh, where I spent a stint as a explosive ordnance disposal and search team um, before being put through a uh, postgrad degree in geospatial intelligence, which is where I first was posted into the National Center of Geospatial Intelligence. Um, a prong of that being 4-2 Engineer Regiment Geographic, where uh, I met George. George was my boss, my officer commanding in 16 Squadron. And, uh, and I'm currently out in Canada for a year assisting the Canadian Armed Forces in all things geospatial Nice. Well, we appreciate you being here because I know it's very early where you are. So um, load up on the coffee while, uh, while George has a go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, Carl. Yeah, so George McRae, I'm a major in the British Army, uh, currently working as the Chief of Staff which is for the Headquarters Royal Engineers Geographic, part of the National Centre of Geospatial Intelligence. So, Kyle, thanks for letting me do that intro rather than trying to uh, get that out yourself. Um, so, my journey, in some ways similar to Luke, but in in other ways uh, very different. And I guess that's sort of a, a really interesting thing which we can explore later on. But um, read geology at university, uh, but that was so long ago. GISs hadn't been invented 
then. So it was all colouring in geological maps rather than using uh, computers to do it. Then had a, a stint working in the, the banking sector for four years. And at the age of 26, decided I, I wanted a bit of a change. So uh, packed up my ironing board and went off to Sandhurst in 2007. And over the last 16 years, you can divide my career in in half quite neatly. The first half was, but all of it's been in the Royal Engineers. The first half was very much focused around armoured engineering. So tanks charging around training areas and us providing the engineer support to help them do the four core functions of the Royal Engineers, which are understand, live, move, fight. And then in 2014, uh, like Luke, I got a postgraduate, was started studying for postgraduate degree in geospatial intelligence, which is then the second part of my career. And I've worked in NATO headquarters as a, a squadron commander, where I was very fortunate to work with Luke, as he's mentioned. And then in my current role as chief of staff, um, all of which have been in the geospatial sphere and therefore a heavy focus on on data and everything that you can glean and do with it and from it nice nice yeah well, thanks for the the comprehensive overview gents i guess um just give our listeners a bit of insight into actually what your roles entail day to day in terms of you know what what are you what are you guys getting up to day to day to help the forces okay so my role at the moment is the chief of staff. Uh, we are the capability headquarters for the Royal Engineers Geographic, which is, um, again, buzzword bingo, but we are defences military geographers. Uh, within that, we've got soldiers and officers deployed all around the world. Luke is a great example of this because he's in Canada at the moment, either on operations, on exercise, or on permanent secondment, providing geospatial support. And that could come in a myriad of forms. That could be data management, data analysis, visualisation, staff support, um, decision-making support, all these types of things. But in this capability headquarters, we're looking at the horizon and over the horizon in terms of where is the capability going to be in a few years' time. And a big bit of work I'm doing at the moment is to rewrite the the strategy to take us out into the next epoch because Defence is going through some huge changes in the way it understands both digital and data going forward. And as a prime... Uh, custodian and customer of data we need to sort of be on that bandwagon and firmly intertwined with it that's sort of in a nutshell what i do and um so so more more broadly both george and i are royal engineers and the royal engineers in the army enable defense to live to move to fight um when, when we strip it back uh, to basics at, at the management level, we manage Royal Engineer soldiers. And uh, what makes Royal Engineer soldiers really unique in the army is that they're triple trained. So every Royal Engineer is first and foremost a soldier. They're then a combat engineer. So they deal with like bridge building, minefield clearance, demolitions, that kind of stuff. Um, and then they get a trade. And there's approximately about 20 trades in the Royal Engineers from like Sparky, Plumber, Chippier, Fitter, all that kind of stuff. And Geospatial Analyst is one of those. All our soldiers then get a foundation degree in applied computing from Sheffield Hallam University. And then they go through some vocational training after that. And then that's what George and I, that those are the people that George and I lead. And, and really what we're doing when we're leading them is to provide spatial analysis and, and create visualizations to aid the commander in making a decision. Nice. Okay, cool. So I guess despite the very obvious differences between a lot of the guests we have on this podcast who obviously come from 
commercial businesses. Um, you gents are doing the same thing, but just for the defence, right? Which makes um, perfect sense. So I guess what I always like to ask as well, gents, is um, people that have been listed in the IQ 100, obviously George, um, number 10, uh, and, and Luke, you were in there as well. Um, I'm just always more curious than anything else as to kind of why you think you were listed in uh, in that kind of prestigious list <laughs> there'd be a trite response um <laughs> but no i think it was really interesting at the the launch event in march and the way david reed queued it up in terms of he'd become aware of things over the last few months with chats which as it transpires were with with luke and me and understanding um the way that defense writ large and the military component of it is really understanding and appreciating data and the true value that you can get from data when you exploit it correctly. But when you step back from that, you've got to really have the right people in your organisation in order to do that. And I think it was really the, from my point of view, it was that enabling of the the team around me to do that um, great analysis. You know, I am not a data specialist following a lot of your LinkedIn stuff um carl when you say you know we want a chief data officer they need to be an excellent leader and be a python ninja is the second line it's you know and you're tearing your hair out doing that you know that is not me in any way shape or form it's i think that enabling of the team to get on and do the amazing work that they did and that was primarily driven by our response to the covid pandemic but then also um, byproducts of that and where our capability has developed innovated adapted and evolved in a very short space of time um and i think it was it was those types of elements that i think david was was really keen to to draw out and things whereas from luke's point of view he was doing that but also being a highly highly skilled data specialist and all all the work that he was doing Um, but i'll hand over to luke to sort of give his thoughts on it yeah um so so i was the category in the data IQ I was put in was the emerging talent or next generation cat- category. One of the young and upcomers, which if you could see my face at 6am um, in, uh, in Canada, you, you, yeah, you would not think I was a young upcomer. I've had a tough paper <laughs> round, I'll tell you that in Yorkshire. Um, however, uh, I think George hit the nail on the head there. I think COVID really provided a catalyst to show what the good work people in the geospatial data world in the military are doing. In the military, I don't think we always get recognition right. And I don't think we do that because we hold ourselves to a much higher standard than I think industry normally would. And so we don't often recognize the talented. We only recognize the exceptional. And what COVID did is it shone a light on us, not just George and I, but uh, a whole host of people working in the engineers, but also much wider in the military. And, and showed what we can achieve. And it just so happened that geospatial personnel had a, a force multiplying element just because COVID was such a spatial problem. You know, where where is COVID in the community? Where are our supplies? How do they get from A to B? Where can we best influence what was happening by putting things in certain places? And so I think we we were very, very lucky in being able to add a lot more value than the average uh, su- support team. And I think ultimately that's what got us recognised on the data IQ list. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and thoroughly 
deserved as well, no doubt. Um, obviously, you, you, you spoke there about COVID. I know there's several other use cases which we're going to delve into throughout the, the rest of this chat. But COVID, you know, the work that you, you guys have done and your team throughout COVID is probably a great starting point to kind of really allow the, the listener to understand some of the ongoings and, you know, the value that came out of the other side of that from a data analytics perspective. So just talk us through that kind of spell with COVID, the work that you was doing, the role that data played, you know, the work that the team did and, and what some of the, the kind of value metrics were around that, if you could. Yeah, so I think the um, when COVID was starting to get a foothold in the UK just over two years ago, we were acute. We defence were acutely aware that we would have a big role to play in that. And in our little corner of defence in the geospatial community, we knew, as Lucas so correctly pointed out, that it was going to be a spatial problem, and we would have a role to play in it. What we didn't have clear a clear idea on is exactly what our role would be. So we sent support elements out all around the country because uh, it's divided up into various uh, military commands, so into 10 areas, but also in the, the standing joint headquarters, which is based down in Aldershot, and that's where Luke went. So that's where the senior military commanders are, who then brief other government departments, uh, COBRA, all these other organisations. And Luke was down there, was able to give us feedback in terms of, this is the way that the senior leaders are thinking, this is the way it's going. We do know it's a a data-led battle. Uh, I think the um, the commander at the time, Lieutenant General Ty Urch, it was he used the phrase "fighting off the same data." We all needed to have the same data in which we were operating from. And the "we" in that context isn't just the military; it was the fire brigade, it was the NHS, it was the police service, it was the the senior decision makers in government. So, what we had to do was harness the power of this singularity of data but also provide a method through which it could be visualised and acted upon by the senior leaders. So we, uh, in a very really short period of time, created, tested, and then uh, released the largest ever common operating picture that was available uh, cross-platform, cross-government agency, and to all our, our partners across government to enable them to see the current situation as it was happening with those vital uh, elements of data. Now, the data we had to start with was, in some respects, quite barren. We had the basic data for the, the mapping of the UK, which is great for when you just need maps. But the data pertaining to the situation was limited at that time because people were concerned, rightly so, about the, um, the releasability of it or how, when you combine all this data, how it can leave you open to security breaches, let's say, within that. Um, so over time, Luke did some great work, well, lots of great work down in older shop and created a lot of personal linkages with individuals who had control of some of the data afterwards. And that's really where we first came across one of the, the key data leaders who was who was Ming Tang. I'll hand over to Luke to sort of tell the story from there about how we, we went about augmenting the data that we had at that time. Yeah. So so initially I think we, we were in a good we were a good start point because because of our organization we had a lot of data sets which covered the UK. I'd recently finished my postgrad uh, studies, of which my thesis was focused on spatial patterns of diseases in the UK and, and where they crop up and why. I mean, I was looking at measles, but I was looking at measles in particular, but a lot of the health data sets and socioeconomic data sets um, for that kind of analysis had had linkages to COVID. 
So we, we were in the position where we knew the kind of data sets that we would need very quickly. And it, it, it sounds very cavalier at, at the start. I was cold calling uh, different <laughs> government bodies and um, commercial data holders. I, I, was a, I was a salesman, but I had nothing to sell. I just had everything to take. And I was calling people up and being like, hey, can you put me through to your data owners? This is what we're about. This is who I am. Um, and it, it, it wasn't very organized initially. And that's because we were still in the kind of discovery and formation of what we were going to achieve. And uh, the chief scientific officer, Dr. Patrick Valance, put, put a really good phrase up, which was data systems need to be in place upfront and be able to give the information to make the analysis and make the decisions to senior leaders. And that really formed where we wanted to go with it. So we started gathering these data sets and a, and a phrase which was uttered a lot in the, in the halls of government during this stage was, we are building the aeroplane while in flight. And that's what we started to do. We were gathering the data because we knew we needed it. Um, and then our exceptionally talented people that we've talked about, and uh, I'm going to name drop a couple, but at the time, Staff Sergeant Dave Barrett, Sergeant Steve Feeney, they were doing some great work building it. George had the vision. I was gathering what we needed. Um, and then as a team, as a Royal Engineer community dispersed across the whole country, um, we started putting it into practice. And we got about a 1,000 users on this platform, which for most of the people listening to this podcast um, isn't a huge amount. The key is who those leaders were that had access to it and where they were. So these were key decision leaders um, across government, defence and the emergency services. And so we were packing a disproportionate punch with pushing that data forward to people to make decisions. And some of those decisions we were able to make, not only was it the day-to-day -day briefing of commanders at all levels, just being able to visualize where COVID was in proportion to where our health infrastructure was, where our logistics infrastructure was, but it also determined or provided the basis for some of our people to determine where NHS Nightingale hospitals were located. Um, and to brief NHS Gold Command on that. Um, if you can remember back, the, the military got really excited about mobile testing units because we were retrofitting vans to be driving around the community and testing people. So spatial analytics from that platform determined where they would be positioned and where they needed to move to to capture the most people. Similarly for asymptomatic test sites later on. And although the, the nucleus of, of that idea conception came from NCGI leadership, it was the junior members of the team, kind of the analyst level within industry, that were doing all this day-to-day -day and creating all this value. And um, just to, to, to kind of put that into perspective, when the Prime Minister was giving his daily briefs to the nation, um, every map that was on there initially was created by a junior soldier from, from our teams. Um, so you're looking at you know, 18 to 24 uh, at the analyst level, creating maps that were seen by millions and millions of people and, and putting the data across in a really clear, concise and easily understandable way. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, um, one of the, the bits to draw out there that Luke touched on, and it, it's really right to praise, it's the, the big, we're a hierarchical organisation, so we disproportionately use the phrase junior to us so it's not meant of a term of 
you know, us looking down on them, it's, you know, to praise them in many respects. But the, the decision for the number of Nightingale hospitals, though made by head of NHS, Sir Simon Stevens, was very much influenced by the work that a couple of the, the junior NCOs, so uh, at the time called Sam Adamson, he cohered and coalesced all the different data feeds that were coming in. And whilst he'd been set the the problem of find out where the NHS Nightingale hospitals can go, he was able to show through data and scientific analysis that you don't need, I think it was 13, you can do you can still achieve the same coverage given the metrics that you've given us by having eight Nightingale sites. So it was that strategic impact, you know, that high level strategic impact that the people who were perceived again in junior terms in our organisation were having and the um, the way in which Luke was able to just sort of empower them, knowing the skill of them to get on and do their jobs and entrust them with the those extra levels of data to have really great effects. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's um, it's fascinating just to kind of sit and hear the story, I think. Um, and this has become more widely spoken about now since COVID and, and hopefully out of the other side of, of the pandemic. But, you know, for all of the bad that the pandemic and COVID did for the world, um, what it did is brought data to the limelight, right? You know, because we saw every yeah, single night on the news, graphs charts maps analysis data that was being spoken about referred to explained as to decisions were being made because of um so i think you know general data literacy levels across the entire population just increased slightly because it was just a given that decisions were being made by data um so probably a very proud moment for you two right that a lot of that work made it to the to the tv screens of millions and millions of people across the country yeah, and, and I think my proud dad moment there was being in a <laughs> w- was being in a a working men's club in Wickersley, Rotherham, and hearing you know an old Yorkshire bloke talking about well that map or that, that table is cumulative data. It needs to be normalised to the population, or so we're not going to be able to uh, compare it to other places. And I'm like looking at this old miner going, <laughs> "Where am I? This is brilliant." Yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was, that was great. So look, obviously, I want to jump into more COVID, such an important topic, and that's really kind of great work. Um, but I know that there's so much more that you guys do beyond that in terms of the work that you're doing out there, right? So I'm really keen to jump into some more of those different kind of examples and, and use cases. Um, I know when we spoke offline, you talked about the adventure training, George, which uh, had me chuckling yeah. and, uh, you know, the stuff around the... <laughs> The kind of um, where we are with carbon in the world and stuff that the, the the kind of forces are doing on that for for the for the good of the the world, shall we say? Just just talk us through some of the other stuff that that, that you guys do. Yeah, I'll, I'll pick up on the bit that you mentioned the uh, adventure training element of it. So this is something that's really key in the armed forces. We don't wear uniform. We go away and do adventurous events. So whether it's skiing, mountaineering, uh, climbing, kayaking, walking, all these types of things, because it builds on those other elements of fighting power, sort of the the moral component and the the physical component. So testing people's leadership skills, testing their mental resilience, also their their physical resilience. And an event that uh, I've organised for later this year is to try and retell the Cockle Shell Heroes, so Operation Frankton from 1942, which was a a raid um, up the Gironde estuary into Bordeaux, executed by Blondie Hasler and a, a team of 
uh, 12 Royal Marines. Um, so we're doing that. So there's going to be 100 kilometres of kayaking, followed by some about 100 kilometres of walking, followed by slightly less uh, walking, um, going over the Pyrenees and into uh, Spain. But what became apparent was through various of the strategic uh, partnerships that we have with software and hardware suppliers was we could use this event to test out technology, capture data, look at new ways of visualizing data um, in order that we can take it back into the normal day working environment. So it's almost having this second order effect of using adventure training as a, a sandbox for other captive activities. So we're going to be recording biometric data. We're going to be having geospatial analysis layers pushed from one of our colleague agencies in the USA who have a very interesting geospatial bent on all of this, you know, using elements like augmented reality, extended reality in order to help people navigate on the fly um, using LIDAR. So what we're not doing is inventing new tech. What we're doing is using the tech and the data aligned to it to understand in different ways. And from the biometric point of view in the armed forces, we, we're really focused on ensuring we're looking after our people correctly. So it's vital to understand, you know, when how far can we push someone so that they're, you know, pushing that physical envelope. And if we need to tail it off a bit, then we can tail it off a bit. There's no point pushing someone to destruction because you don't need to, but you can push them to test them a bit and then step back a bit. So there's there's all these different nuances of data and different types of data. And it's the idea of we as a trade, as we're engineers, geographic, we we do create data, we do curate data, we collate data. And this exercise is very much a microcosm of that because we are going to create it, we are going to collate it, we're going to share it around our, our organisation. Um, as well, in order to sort of use this as a, a passive test bed to try and see if we can bring anything into service. Yeah, it's really interesting that because I guess if you were to to compare it to the commercial world and, and data industry in the commercial world, what you're describing there is almost like the equivalent of experimentation in a commercial yeah. business, right? You know, so there's businesses out there now that are doing some really great initiatives around, I don't know, one Friday a month, they will let their people go and they'll go and try to solve some crazy problem that's just been kind of, you know, made up on the fly to kind of see what comes out of that. So it's not necessarily designed directly to the work that they're doing right now, but it's to broaden their horizons and look at other ways of doing things, try and test different methods, et cetera, that, you know, as you say, they can bring back into the workplace. So that's really interesting to hear, even in your industry, there's ways of doing that, right? Because I think there's a lot of businesses out there that really struggle with that experimentation piece, like, oh, you know, what do we lose or what do we gain by letting our people do that? How do we put structure and parameters around it? So it's really fascinating to me that you can do that even in you know the world that you live in, in a way that is uh, this benefit to it, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. You know, it's kind of a team bonding exercise as well at the same time, but still kind of there's something out of the other side of it, which is really yeah, interesting. And I think we're in that lucky position where unlike commercial sector, we don't have a, well, so we do have a bottom line. We don't have a bottom line in the same sense that uh, many of the listeners in the commercial sector would have. So whilst that doesn't mean we go wasting money, it means that we can do that experimentation piece and to use another sort of phrase that's on the up at the moment, innovation, although that's, you know, a whole different podcast in itself. But um, 
I've been lucky enough to do a, a three-month innovation fellowship this year and things, and I'm doing a, another course at the moment about it. But it's that we do have this way in using that power of combinations, whether that's individuals, uh, strategic partners, whatever it may be, to look out different areas in which we can improve our organisation. And some of it is iterative development. And we have within our capability, the CapDev Activist Network, which is drawing together all those people we mentioned before who are all around the world, coming together once every six weeks to sort of share their ideas. What problems are you working on? And this idea of the, uh, the coffee shop mentality from the 19th century where some of the great innovations, the great awakening or enlightening happen because people are sharing ideas, bouncing them, them off each other. And so the, the angle you thought or the direction you thought you were going will suddenly veer and haul. If you're going to fail, fail quickly, pivot and start again. And, you know, that's much of what we do is doing that and you know, necessity being the mother of invention or innovation. We're trying to stay ahead of that curve constantly. So where we have bespoke activities, see what else we can do out of that. And as you say, use it as an experimentation test bed, use it as a sandbox, look in ways in which we can combine different elements in order to make our organisation better and provide better outputs. And, and I think on that experimentation, so the engineers is as I've mentioned, is a is fantastic for experimentation because we have so many tradespeople across not only digital but physical. And so we've started putting things called maker spaces into engineer regiments, which is like an ISO container full of 3D printers and loads of power tools and loads of materials. And we've got design draftsmen and people that are trained up on CAD and things like that. And we just give them free reign. There's no output, which is the key. You know, too often experimentation is here is a problem. We expect an output. Well, soldiers here could spend a month experimenting with something, the output being absolutely nothing. And that's okay because that's as useful as getting something. And George mentioned Defense Digital, uh, which I'll talk about a little bit more. But head of our digital academy, Julia Pearson, has created this fantastic online resource for the military where people can upskill themselves in everything from machine learning to Python. And uh, they get these skills, which they learn online, but also there is a, there's a vocational element to that. And then they are able to go into a digital marketplace where defense can post problems and say, hey, you know, I need an app creating for this part. And it matches someone up to those skills and allows us to help ourselves, which is, uh, which is fantastic. And George and I have like a running joke between ourselves about uh, being like a pirate. So, I mean, this comes from, I'm not paid by this person at all. It just happens to be something that um, I'm interested about. But a chap called Sam Conniff wrote a book called Be More Pirate, which is about um, organizations that have a few too many rules, norms, and conventions, and they no longer enable like quick, agile decisions. And sometimes you know what needs to be done, but because of red tape, it, it can't always be done. And so Be More Pirate is creative dissidence in that you're able to get on with things that you know need to happen by not breaking the rules, but just getting on and doing it. And one of those examples, which you touched on earlier, was a carbon sequestration project, which in 2021, the military put out a climate change and sustainability strategic approach document, which stated that the military creates 50% of all government's carbon emissions, which oh. it's equal to about the country of Namibia. Because we all know how much carbon Namibia outputs daily, but the military also owns one percent of the UK landmass, which is about two hundred twenty-five thousand hectares across the UK. And so, 
I read this and saw this as a, a bit of a spatial problem. And I thought, well, one thing that uh, everyone from school and upwards understands is that trees sequester carbon, they lock away carbon. We've got a lot of land, we produce a lot of carbon. There must be a spatial solution here. And so no one really asked me and the, the small geospatial team that I put together to look into this, but we thought, hey, where can we add some value? And we created a model which output where we could plant trees, but not only that, but the right kind of trees that doesn't hinder training on this huge training area that we've got across the UK. And it plants them in places that don't lead to carbon loss. And the data we used for this was like elevation, slope, soil type, land use, protected areas, solar radiation, all these together um, to output where the best place is. So we ran a proof of concept for this, and it showed that just one training area that we looked at, which happened to be in Wales, there was an extra 1,600 hectares of land that we could plant trees on without impacting any training, and that could lock up about 32 kilotons of additional carbon. And so what do we do with that? So we've, we've created this value add, and then we start looking to defence organisations that could use it. And for us, that's Defence Infrastructure Organisation, DIO, who manages all our training areas. And so we were able to go to them with this solution, luckily talk to the right people so it didn't just get locked away and, or shelved. And, um, and now it's really adding value to where we can put trees, how we can be more responsible and start to help the government reach its goal of carbon net zero by 2050. Yeah, I mean, that's really impressive. Obviously, the, you know, the whole world now is more conscious about this stuff, right, which is is fascinating to see. I think what's becoming more and more evident through this conversation for me, gents, is that ultimately, under all of this, there's some kind of cultural appetite that allows you to do the work that you do and think that the way you think if i think about so a lot of the commercial businesses that we deal with day to day for example loads of people would want to do this stuff the business probably just prohibits them from thinking in this way or getting on and doing that stuff because there's a whole host of other stuff they could be doing which you know would be making the business money or reducing their costs or making them more efficient or whatever the case may be but it seems to me that culturally in your organization there's this this kind of acceptance that experimentation is good you know you're going to do a lot of experimentation that which might not yield to anything but the one thing that does will be really beneficial and will help to save lives improve the planet whatever the case may be is that is that a fair assessment yeah i mean i think in terms of i, I can't say what commercial sector do but i can certainly speak for what we do the the military's always had a really proud history of innovation experimentation whichever of the the phrases you want to do and um so much so that world war ii let's track back 70 80 years general percy hobart um was initially sacked as a senior leader in the military because he had too many radical ideas he was then hired back or um recommissioned because i don't know whether it went all the way up to churchill but sort of senior leaders realized that we needed these radical thinkers to come up with collective, not individually, but collectively, you know, the power of the team um, to come up with ideas. And this is where the phrase Hobart's funnies came from. So you look at D-Day and some of the, the non-tank tanks, so like the crocodile tank flamethrower, the, the bridging vehicle, the armoured vehicle Royal Engineer, the duplex drive tanks, all these ones that were slightly left field, 
these all came about because of General Percy and his team. And you never want to put it on one person. I and mean, his name is synonymous with innovation in the in the core, if not the army. But it's this idea of empowering the team, looking after the team, giving them the space to think. And I think we're in that lucky position where you know Luke and I certainly have spent so much time on the study of leadership, command, management, how you enable a team, how you empower a team, how you create the, as you said, culture. And I think it really does go back to that, how that, that culture and in order to let ideas thrive, because it's not up to leaders to have all the great ideas. It's up to leaders to enable and empower the team around you to have the ideas. Now, it might be that a leader has a good idea once in a while. Great, well done me, get promoted and carry on. But it's more likely that it's going to be, yeah, fingers crossed, it's more likely that it's going to be the the team around you. And that's certainly, you know, the story of why we're here is because, in essence, it was the team around us that had all the great ideas. And Luke and I were either acting as the the body armour to stop people hassling them or, you know, getting that foot through the door, like Luke was saying about the the getting the data. We knew if we got the data, we could do some great things and we'd pass it off to the people who had the great ideas. So we are lucky that we do have that culture and you know, there's many other great innovations and um, experimentation that's gone on through military history. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really nice to actually just be part of that. I, th- I think that the geospatial trade within the Royal Engineers is also very lucky because in terms of creating like a cognitive diversity within our teams, don't quote me on this. I'm sure there'll be some Royal Engineer recruiter that hits me up and is upset, but I believe that the the geospatial trade is the most diverse trade out of the whole Royal Engineers in terms of males, females, and and different ethnicities. And and what that means for us is that we get the best ideas. Um, also, all our people have a, you know, they have a higher baseline education, and education is not synonymous with creativity, but it enables people in my view, to be able to communicate that idea better because they've had that experience in putting their thoughts down on paper. And so what we're left with is uh, a highly educated, highly cognitively diverse team. And if you look back over the last um, 18, 24 months, um, this is what we can produce when we are given the leeway to uh, experiment yeah it's a really interesting point because obviously i mean i harp on around the whole diversity inclusion conundrum that our industry finds itself in especially in the commercial world right but i I don't think there's anyone out there that disagrees that having a you know diverse group of people within a team um is a bad thing for creativity and new ideas and all of that stuff but to, to your point around the articulation of those ideas that's a really interesting concept because if you look at what a lot of conversations that we have on this podcast and during the events that we run and et cetera, et cetera. Um, we often talk around translation, right? It's a, it's a mm. kind of taking technical concepts from the data world and making them known, but also understandable to people that don't come from this industry. So business leaders, people that have to make decisions. So it's, that's a really interesting point that you make there, Luke. Um, yeah. I think there's a couple of things just sort of picking up on that, uh, Carl, the, Matthew Syed's book, Rebel Ideas, the first chapter is about the lack of cognitive diversity rife in the US intelligence agencies in the uh, 80s and 90s. So, you know, the counter to that is that the point Luke was exactly making, you know, the diversity that we do have in our workforce um, is great and does lead to to all these, um, all these great, well, partly leads to 
all these great ideas and long may that continue yeah yeah absolutely um so conscious of time gents i wanted to start kind of moving the conversation along one thing that always fascinates me is the the idea of value right because that's really when you strip it away you know strip everything else away what it comes down to is how our data analytics teams in whatever setting in whatever environment in whatever industry that's their job is to kind of create value for the business or organization that they're working for um in a commercial setting, that's really obvious, right? That's an increase in revenue. It's a decrease in cost. It's improving efficiencies. It's mitigating risks, right? But in uh, government and public sector and the forces, for example, um, value isn't necessarily those things, right? But there, there's a whole host of value that you that you do create from the work that, that you do. So how do you kind of, I guess the question is, how, how do you kind of pinpoint what constitutes value to the use cases that you're working on? I think a lot of it has to do with the situation that you find yourselves in. Um, and one of the easiest ways in which to, to add value is to create time. So by, you know, harnessing technologies, it is nowadays automation, all these types of things, you can create more time for the senior leaders on who you're briefing to make the decision that you know that they're going to have to make and people always want time they never have enough of it so by using all the data and getting it getting to your point of you know that the end product how you're going to visualize it creating it in an easily consumable format so that people can understand and then make the decision from it if you look at the um the mod twitter feed over the last uh, two and a half months since late February, let's say, the tweets that they've been putting out about the intelligence assessment that's been going on um, in Ukraine, you know, behind that, there's a high-end level of data analytics and intelligence assessment, but it's presented in such an easily consumable way that you don't have to be a high-end intelligence analyst or leader to understand it. And it's that type of stuff. You can create time by doing the hard lifting yourself in order to present the senior leaders with an easily understandable uh, product or outcome or situation on which they need to make a decision. Yeah. 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 And I, I would say there that the military is in a weird one in that most of the value that we add isn't something that occurs every day. And so normally when I talk to my f- friends about being in the army, they ask like, what do you do every day? Like if you think of an infantry soldier, they're not charging round Salisbury Plain with a rifle, uh, bayoneting sandbags every day. However, if there was a conflict, you know that's where they're adding the most value is a specific time and place, uh, and and the rest of the time there's a lot of training. I think that is really tough. How do you quantify? Because most of the tra- time we are training for for a very rare occasion that occurs, but when that does occur, there will be so much value to to be added in only ways that people in the military can add it, which is the application of force. And so it is a strange one to quantify. I think the data value that George just brought up there is most of the people that we provide decision support to are not data experts. And so Mm. you can measure the value that we add by the understanding that they have of what we have produced. And I think there is a evolution of people when they get into data industries. And I think initially you want to do the most complicated thing to kind of show off what you've learned to what you can do. And you create these weird and wonderful plots or visualizations. 
and then you get a, you know a sense of importance by explaining it to people that don't get it but once you mature a bit you actually see that that is not a good place to be and so when you become you add the most value is what you have produced you've done the behind the scenes um clever stuff but then what you produce is so simple that people think that they could do it and they understand it straight away and um i think that's where we can add the most value as as a data is by people thinking that what we do is easy if people think that what you do is easy you've added value and you are producing that value add yeah, yeah it's that yeah. misperception of you're the best because you can you know you're you're showing them something really really complicated and that's you know that power comes from intelligence and holding on to the intelligence and not explaining it whereas the real power comes from as luke so rightly put it creating it in an easily consumable simple format thinking making everyone think that they can do it and then they yeah. realize the all the training you need to have and the base intelligence and the cognitive diversity behind it they go actually right that's the key power that's the key influence there uh, yeah. when they look behind the curtain to use the wizard of oz analogy yeah i mean it's, that's that's really interesting because i think that's that's fairly rife still across the industry in general right you know every the, the people out there want to build the sexiest, shiniest machine learning mm. model um, as the the starting point, you know, and most businesses, if I'm honest, have probably been guilty of this themselves in terms of that's being their starting point, you know, the real fancy, cutting edge, high tech stuff, when in fact, they don't know where the data is. There's no governance around that, you know, so the, the kind of the, the the infrastructure and the initial outlay probably means they're not in a situation to to be doing that fancy stuff. But I think you're, you're absolutely right. And obviously the use cases you've used, right? The stuff around COVID, the stuff around experimentation or innovation, the stuff around carbon, you know, all of that is value added stuff. I guess it's just how, you know, it's a different way of measuring what that value is is because you know you're not necessarily unlike a commercial business trying to tie it back to a pound and pence yeah. figure right which is, yeah. is is really interesting and it's that bit of we're we're not inventing new widgets or gadgets or anything like that it's taking what is already exist and putting them together in different ways it's you know it's almost like lego it's the the fun of it is almost putting it together in a different combination to see what you can come up with um and that's, I think, the, the with Luke's carbon sequestration paper, and one day I'll be able to say that word properly. <laughs> um, uh, it, the genius of his idea was seeing those causal linkages and how to link them together. All the ways in which the, the technology that he used and the programs that he used, they already existed within the MOD. It was that linking together and weaving all the bits to be that that golden thread that comes through of the this is how we can achieve something vitally important to our survival. And that's, I think, where you, know, you look at the exploit-explore ratio in the innovation sector and people go, oh, you know, you're exploiting too much and not exploring. Well, exploring doesn't have to be inventing new stuff. Exploring can be that different way of, through the power of combinations, combining different things together. I'm always minded of the, the clip in Apollo 13 when they say, right, all these astronauts are going to die unless all this stuff that already exists in the, the spacecraft, we can put it together in a different way to create breathable air. They weren't necessarily inventing something brand new. They were just taking stuff that existed, putting it together in a different way to have a, a life-changing outcome. Um, yeah. yeah. Sorry, a bit of a weird rant, but... <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean, I, I think for me, again, this comes back to 
having an environment and a culture where that stuff is accepted like it's all good and well to have that culture and for people to try but the acceptance of that by the people that lead the organization its entirety to know that you know just because someone is doing something we shouldn't expect an immediate return and i think that's where we've got to in the commercial world because to be honest with you we've had years and years and years of trying to do data analytics better and you know large sums of investment that haven't resulted in kind of tangible value out of the other side of that so now you know the focus all on if i do x what do i get you know what is y um which is obviously a very different environment to yours but i think ultimately that's a cultural thing you know even the the people that lead the organization need to be fully on board and, and allow that to happen, if that makes sense, which kind of leads me into the next bit around investment for you and your team, because I think that's one thing that, you know, there, there's always a trade-off now in the commercial world of, as I've just mentioned, if we invest X, what does that mean for us? What are we going to get from this? And obviously when you're in an environment where putting a tangible quantifiable figure on what value is, um that that's probably a, a, a fairly unique conversation i'd say right so how, how do you kind of justify the investment in terms of growing your team growing your capabilities to do more work to be able to do more work for the forces etc i think it's a it's a point that we've mentioned a few times it's the investing in our people in order that they can execute excellence at, at the end of it so as luke said the the soldiers going through training get a bachelor's of science in computing from from Sheffield Hallam. The officers are going to do the uh, army survey courses. It was called get a master's in geospatial intelligence. That's just the very start of the the journey. There's this constant CPD, and by that I mean continual professional development, not personal development, because it's developing us as a profession. And we we do invest time and other resources, so finance, in training our people so that they can. You know, when needs be, when you come to that eleventh hour, do what is required and and ask of them. Um, and it goes back to that Richard Branson quote of you know, invest in your people so much that they can leave, but look after them so that they want to stay. But it's it, you've got to invest in your people, and I think we're quite lucky that we can do that through all this experiential learning, through all the other courses and things that we can put on for them, because we don't have a big pot of money that we can invest in and go and buy new stuff per se. It's it is that idea of enabling the the people both as an individual and a, a team to do stuff. Yeah, and 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 also seeing the value in things that aren't initially seen as valuable. And and I'll unpick that because that's you know I'm speaking in uh, in tongues there. So, for example, George has talked about recreating the cockle shell heroes. Um, so that comes under adventure training. Now, when I explain to people adventure training. They just think, oh, the army's paying for you to go skiing for a week. You're going on a holiday. It's a jolly. Whereas actually that investment is allowing people through the vehicle of a sport or activity to face stressful situations. For those people that can ski or have been skiing, um, it's quite a an uphill curve with the army. I think day two uh, of learning to ski, the Royal Marine was teaching me uh, to ski he put me on a half pipe which didn't go well the half pipe was closed because i smashed my nose and blood was all over the slopes but what it, it, it allows us to understand risk to understand stuff that would scare us initially and to allow us to create personal mechanisms to deal with that and um the military is great at investing in those 
intangible bits which have a tangible output when those you know black swan events occur such as conflict and i'll I'll give you an example so george has talked about our initial professional development up to for soldiers the the bachelor's degree for officers for the master's degree but there is loads of in-service masters phds Mm. university short courses bespoke courses for example we got funding to bring in the Office of National Statistics to teach uh, 20 of our soldiers an R module because we thought that that would be better at visualizing and making the complex look simple to our commanders. And then, you know, taking it to the obscure, last year I applied for the European Space Agency astronaut program. Now, initially, you're like, well, how's that going to benefit the Army, Um, a land-based organization? (laughs) <laughs> However, having that support and investment, so the military was like, yeah, you go for it, Luke. And if you get it, you still got a job because they understood what I would be bringing back after that. Um, whether it's just having my mug on a poster to inspire the next generation of soldiers or to understand that leadership and high risk that trust you being in space. Now, I must caveat that I got caught very quickly from that program, so I'm not going to go to space anytime soon. But um, it was just more that they had my back and, and were willing to invest years for me to go and do that. Mm, yeah. Then the the interesting part for me in all of this is obviously, as, you, as you've kind of brought up numerous times throughout the episode, is that in the setting that you're in, value realisation will only come when you need it to come if that makes sense in, in many circumstances yeah. and that there's a lot, often a, a long lead up time for those events to occur. I guess the difference is, is that in certain instances like COVID or like potential, you know, war or conflict scenarios, those decisions that are made based on the intelligence that you provide based on the data that you're working with, the, the analysis that you do can often be the difference between life and death, right? So in a commercial business where, you know, they're trying to increase sales by 20%. Well, that's great. But, um, you know, it always fascinates me then in terms of the investment. This must be such a difficult place to be for the people that make those decisions on budgeting and stuff, because ultimately who <laughs> who gets to decide on, you know, how much a life is worth, for example, um, yeah. which is a really fascinating, really fascinating place to be. Yeah. And I think parochially going back in terms of, um, you know, how do you, quantify value i think in our bit of the military in the royal engineers geographic element it's the the trust that's placed in you and how much your voice is listened to again it's an intangible element you can't quantify it but you can get a feel for it so if you're briefing senior leaders whoever they may be and they're actually listening to you and they're making decisions from it that's the value of your input if you go into the tent and they go who are you and what are you doing here Um, which is has happened to me before um, whether that's you know a critique on my um professionalism i don't know but then you realize that your value isn't being added in it and accepted but over time you get the trust of the people and they're going right well actually no where's the geo person i need geo in here and there's been instances in operations where there's been royal navy ships haven't sailed because they're waiting for the geospatial data and the junior insert so the junior soldier to arrive on board and the captain of the ship said we are not leaving port now i do not care i want the geo person on board and this was for humanitarian disaster relief in the caribbean a few years ago because the ship's captain knew the value that could be brought 
through geospatial data and the understanding of what was happening on the ground. So he stopped the ship leaving, I can't remember which port it was, um, because he wanted the geoperson with the data. Uh, and it's that idea of that, you know, the two come together. You've got the individual who understands it or the team who understand it and the data um, because the two separately are no use, but together it's a, a, a um, force multiplying, you know, game-changing effect. Um, so that's, I think, where there's sort of that intangible but slightly tangible effect of uh, understanding of, of the value that we can exert. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it seems to me that it, irrespective of environment setting, industry, organisation, you know, it often comes down to that kind of buy-in, right, and influence and your ability to influence yeah. to, to get buy-in, etc. which is, uh, yeah, sounds sounds very similar, but um, yeah. Um, so look, conscious of time, really keen to finish on, gents. What, what does the future look like for you both? Obviously, Luke's not going to space, um, so we can rule that one out, but uh, what's coming next? over the next few years for you both i think for myself so as of yesterday I, I just put in an application to warwick business school to do a an mba so i'm hoping that i get some good news in a couple of months and, and i can start start that to start to understand for me that's something that i'm self-funding but will have tangible benefits to defense which is i have a great understanding tooting my own horn of um the data element, but now it's understanding how the business effect of that technological understanding. And so uh, that's me uh, for the next two years, hopefully. Short term of, as well as a you know, day job doing the innovation course at the moment with uh, side business school, part of um, University of Oxford, which is really, really interesting in taking that idea and understanding of innovation up to the strategic level and then looking how i can bring that back into the organization um because as we said you know we we don't really have that ability to generate money so we've got to look at innovative practices in order to do stuff um on a, a personal side of things or due to change roles next summer so um, we'll wait and see what um what jobs are, are in the offering then and see where um on the globe i get to take me and the family on the next adventure having previously two jobs in germany being around the south currently in cambridge so we'll, we'll wait and see what what adventure awaits in the coming year nice nice well chaps thank you very much for joining uh, joining us on the show today it's been a, an absolute pleasure having you on and appreciate you being so um so canis, uh, candid and, and honest with everything and um yeah forward to see how the kind of forward adventures uh, play out for you both yeah, thanks very much for having us been an absolute pleasure yeah no cheers kyle thank you no worries speak soon that's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, please follow our Bishon Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening and I'll be back next week.